streaming across the temp. Cherry, that's why it's pink. Look out! River Radio is Spread the word. This is River Radio. I am Ronnie Singh and this is The Missing Question, River Radio's weekly two-hour news programme. With me, I have Linda Dubley, journalist and women's empowerment strategist and refugee advisor. We're going to be doing a lot on refugees today. Welcome, Linda. Good morning, Ronnie. Glad to be here. We have several missing questions for you today because apart from Linda, hopefully if uh, Ajay Patel can make it on Zoom, we will have Ajay Patel, marathon man, talking about all sorts of things in the second hour, the big interview hour. But the missing question for our first hour, the news hour, is do you know the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? Do you know the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? Who better to talk about that than the refugee expert, Linda Dubilly? We'll also be picking up on the cost of living, petrol, travel, um, the no confidence vote and looking at that we'll be thinking about obviously the cost of living crisis, the summer of discontent we'll be going over to America to have a look at Matthew McConaughey's stunning 20 minute speech about the Tes- Texas massacre and uh, the January 6th hearing that's been going on about the Capitol uh, riots which resulted in so much mayhem. Don't forget you can catch us on the web, on your mobile app, on Alexa and you can write to us at studio at river.radio and rani at river.radio linda at river.radio if you want to listen again head over to the website river.radio or find a podcast of this show go to one of your normal podcast platforms and they will all be there Ajay Patel, if he appears, will be talking about training for the London Marathon. COVID, poor fellow, has got COVID for the second time in six months, three months actually, and um, uh, picking up on the travel and various other topics of interest. So, Linda, we are refugees. Rwanda have very much been in the news this week with uh, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, uh, purportedly, reportedly, although the palace spokesman deny this, uh, weighing in on this topic about saying that sending refugees to Rwanda is not a good idea. Um, however, the palace has said that, uh, declared that uh, the Prince of Wales does not get involved in um, matters of uh, political concern. He keeps away from that uh, in their palace speak, of course. But uh, can you unravel this? And c- first of all, can you ex- actually explain to us, please, what is the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker, to be frank? Because I didn't know the difference. 
No, because you've just said refugees in the Rwandan situation and what the Rwandan situation refers to are asylum seekers. So if you try and think of the overarching term, the overarching term for other countries' nationals who wish to come to this country are migrants. And below that, there are several categories. First of all, if you look at the Afghanistan um, evacuees, they are evacuees because 12 to 15,000 were airlifted out of Afghanistan as Kabul fell to the Taliban. Now, some of those are British nationals. Some of those actually have British passports. And the others, when they get here, are given right to remain. Refugees are given right to remain. Asylum seekers come from various areas, war-torn areas, conflict areas. They're escaping religious persecution, gender persecution, conflicts, etc. And they come to Britain and they claim asylum. Uh, now, that takes a long time, takes several years and I think the latest figures indicate that just over half of those people who, impl- who apply for indefinite leave to remain do get it. The rest don't and have to go back from whence they came. So this particular situation refers to asylum seekers. Now, it was very dramatic on Friday. The High Court sat until 6.30. We were expecting a verdict at 5 o'clock, but it carried on sitting. And it was found in the end that Pretty Patel's move was said to be in the public interest. Now, there will, the judge gave them, Jonathan Swift, uh, Judge Swift, sorry, that was a <laughs> confusion with the great novelist. <laughs> but but um, maybe the maybe. same family. <laughs> <laughs> but the judge has given them uh, leave to remain, uh, leave, leave to appeal on Monday morning. So we will see how the story rolls out. Now, we are told that there are 100 uh, people going to be taken onto that plane at a secret location. We don't know whether it's a civilian aircraft. We don't know whether it's a military aircraft, but there are a hundred people. Earlier in the week, I was told that there were one or two Afghans on board who had escaped persecution by the Taliban. Um, But the government's position is they are largely people who entered this country on inflatable rafts. Now, can I just stop and say something there? Because there is no category under the law of this country which is particularly designed to cater for people who enter on inflatable rafts. Well, what the government does know is that that is a phrase that resonates with the public. Because when all's said and done, although we know that the Archbishop of Canterbury has joined the debate and called it immoral, we know that um, there is, what what shall we say, um, speculation about the Prince's intervention here, or non-intervention as the palace calls it, um, and his position that it might be immoral. The fact of the matter is that there are many, many people in this country who are deeply troubled by the number of um, immigrants trying to get into Britain and the most the most resonant photographs and footage we see on television does relate to the inflatables that cross the the channel that's that's what people are concerned about can you uh, can I ask you Linda what is it about that image of the of the people trying to get into Britain on the inflatable um, boats. What is it that's resonating? What What are people feeling when they see that? I think partly they think that it's such a perilous journey. We've seen this going on for year after year after year. 
And it's very dangerous. We've seen women, we've seen children, we've seen people die. Many, many people die on that crossing. Uh, And there was, and still is, a great deal of sympathy for those people. But if you like, it's a visual characterisation of what people fear uh, about the pressure on resources, particularly because we're in an economic crisis and particularly because we're motoring now towards the autumn where things are going to be a great deal worse and the pressure on resources will be a great deal more. Does that mean, Linda, that those images that we speak, you, you're speaking of, of, of these people on, on the inflatable dinghies and, and crafts and so on, does that mean that they are invoking a feeling of sympathy but um, a sort of double feeling in, in the viewing public that uh, people are also also thinking, gosh, there are more people arriving in the UK and the cost of living is going up and, and this is going to be a stretch on our resources. Is that what they're thinking? Uh, it's very hard to know exactly what people are thinking. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, know. I can only I can only report observations I've heard, and I think people have a great deal of sympathy until they don't. And we're reaching a situation where pe- people, many people, believe that something simply has to be done about this situation. We've heard lots of talk about immigration, residential immigration centres being built in Britain. No one wants them in their backyard. We don't know what to do about the number of people arriving. So this is one course of action. But actually, it's widely agreed by very influential moral leaders, religious leaders and community leaders, that, that this is not the way forward. But of course um, the Prime Minister now has an agenda where he has to do something to uh, to mitigate uh, what he's been through over previous weeks in terms of giving the public something of what they want. Mm, interesting and we're right in the thick of it because this show is going to go out on the Monday lunchtime as well and and there's something coming up on Monday isn't there? Yeah it'll be interesting to, it will be interesting to to see what happen. Um, the this the, the the claimant coalition in this particular case was detention action and care for Calais. Care for Calais, I deal with regularly, um, and the Public Commercial Services Union and four of the detainees who who went in um, to to launch this action. Now the the thing is that even when there's an appeal and, and that. That is a last minute thing because it is the day before the flight is due to take mm. off. There could be a situation going forward where each individual person about to be de- deported could launch their own appeal. And that will certainly slow things down because all these appeals can be slightly different in tone and content. And they could all cause a problem for the courts just simply getting through the numbers. That's fascinating. And do you think, I wonder if each of we don't have any idea about who these hundred are, who these people are, do we? It's slightly more. I think it's um, 130 um, refugees um, who've been detained since arriving in the UK by boat. So what we do believe is that all of the asylum seekers in this case um, are people who've arrived by boat. And that's that's an important thing that keeps popping out into the public arena. Because if you say, well, these people arrive by boat, they're part of those people who just, you know, c- c- try to get to these country on these inflatable crafts, um, it's, it's likely that there will be less of a problem with public opinion. It's likely that the 130 people involved here are all men because no one wants any kind of photographs emerging into the public arena of women and children being forcibly loaded 
loaded onto a plane. And as I say, we don't yet know whether this will be a civilian aircraft or a military aircraft. We don't know how it's going to happen. We only know that these people do not want to go to Rwanda. Hmm. It's 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 uh, wheels within wheels, isn't it? Now this is all about um, campaigners uh, too, uh, who failed in their bid. It was it was overruled by Priti Patel, as you, as you say. There's going to be another hearing on Monday, and then you've raised the further um, fascinating possibility of each of these asylum seekers. Uh, launching their own um, bids in the High Court as well. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting legal position. I don't know how realistic that is, because also what we know is that each individual person will only have seven days to appeal so they don't once they're named as being going to Rwanda they only have seven days to actually get anything going but it's not beyond the bounds of possibilities that some kind of philanthropist could step in here and make Mm. a major donation in order to fund their their legal position and push it through the system you know quite quickly I guess but at the moment it seems that Priti Patel and the Prime Minister are determined that this scheme will go go ahead. Um, I, I don't want to make a value judgment on whether it's it's good or it's bad. That's not really my position. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think it's bad to send people to a malaria-ridden country where they clearly haven't got on top of the situation. Uh, well, who has? What malaria-ridden country has? And it is a country which still has its own issues, um, although, although it will enter the Commonwealth, and I suppose that's some reassurance. But I also can see, on the other hand, that we are a very small country and we've got limited amount of space, we've got limited resources, and we are cruising towards, well, not even cruising, we're on a roller coaster ride towards a very, very difficult economic climate in the autumn. Mm, indeed. Now, you, just to pick up on what you just said there, will they be named... Will will these um, passengers be named? I think there's probably that... somewhere in the Human Rights Act or somewhere in, in in regulation somewhere which says that the names have to go into the public domain. I don't know about that. Mm. Um, and I don't know how much the names would make a difference to us. I suppose that it would help us see them as human beings, characterise them as individual human beings instead of being a sort of job lot being pushed onto a, um, a plane. But I, I don't know whether those names are ever likely to come out. And what about the full judicial review that's uh, scheduled to happen before the end of July? Will that make any difference? Well, that is. um, I think that's an interesting thing because immediately after... Um, and it is Jonathan Swift, actually. It is Justice Jonathan Smith, I noticed (laughs) from my notes. Ah. Um, Immediately after... Justice Swift said that part of the claimant's case that claimed that the Home Secretary Priti Patel's decision to treat Rwanda as a safe country was either irrational or based on insufficient investigation. Uh, that meant it would be heard at a full judicial review. Mm. So there is this situation where he sees the, the and outlines the public interest in, in this particular decision. He s- still sees that there are grounds for a full judicial review later on. So we're no way are we out of the weeds in this situation. It's not something that's going to be cleared up on Monday. It's not going to be something that's cleared up with these regular flights to Rwanda. This whole debacle will go on for a very long time now. And if you imagine, even if you sent a 100 asylum seekers to Rwanda once a fortnight, you are still only eating into the whole situation 
a tiny bit by a tiny bit, it will take an awful long time for, for, for there to be any real inroads in reducing the pressure on immigration resources in this country. And the other point is that the, the Conservative point is, and Boris Johnson's point and Priti Patel's point has been, this will act as a deterrent to the people traffickers. That's the main plank of their argument. Whereas, in fact, the figures don't bear that out. Because since this has been announced, there has been almost no reduction possibly a small increase in the number of people crossing the channel in inflatables. So when the evidence is right in front of your eyes, I wonder why you keep saying that this is this is a deterrent, when clearly the evidence points in the other direction. I think those coming, not that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of for or against on this either, but I think the people who wish to come to the UK one way or another, they're probably calculating that risk factor and, and looking at the figures you've just sort of referred to uh, and, uh, and thinking, well, you know, in terms of risk, it's clearly still worth doing for <clears> them. <throat> Maybe, but I don't think there's any risk calculation going on here. I think the people that come to this country generally speaking, are absolutely desperate. And I speak to some of them week in, week out. All they see is I have to get away from something. And and I, I'm either dead or I'm alive. It's very, very simple for some of these people. And uh, and I don't think you, you they wouldn't they wouldn't risk these situations if they were sitting pondering doing a calculation, you know, in in Calais or wherever they've come from, I, I just think all they think is I have to get away from this particular situation. And um, say it's the Taliban where they know their lives are in danger. It could be women who um, who, who are gay in uh, Iran who who know that if the authorities find out what what their you know gender preferences, that they will therefore be facing a long-term incarceration or death. Um, I've spoken to people who are Christians who've come from Iran who know that that it is illegal and punishable by death for them to practice their own religion. They don't make a risk calculation. They just are fleeing something that they can't survive at home. Clearly, and I think you'd have to be really desperate to, you know, leave your home and and you know, whatever few belongings you can have, your passport, your, um, you know, your basically survival kit, put it into a rucksack because there isn't any space for suitcases or, you know, it's or anything like that. Take just literally what you absolutely need and, and uh, try and find, a you know, uh, your way across the sea uh, to an island effectively. Mm. You know, you really uh, do, are forced to... You're, you're reduced to absolutely anything that you can carry and the, the barest essentials. And you've, you've listed out a, a number of sad cases there. And um, I mean, I think if one, one of the things you could do to reduce pressure would be to speed up the actual process by which asylum seekers' appeals are heard. Mm. Because there are people here, it's taken four or five years for some of these people to go through the pipeline and to make the system more efficient, that would be one thing to do. But of course, that's not something that's appealing to to a populist prime minister because it's kind of below the radar you know improving the efficiency of the civil service 
whilst you want to cut back on it at the same time, is not very easy to do. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a populist prime minister. Boris Johnson is a very good populist prime minister. He's very appealing, he's very accessible, he does things that are quite showy, he does things that are obviously popular, as I've just said. But sometimes the real meat in the sandwich, if you like, is the detail, is the detailed hard graph that goes into actually changing a situation and certainly improving the the pipeline for asylum seekers would be a step forward. Oh, Linda, you're here suggesting about cleaning up the bureaucracy and making it more efficient and heaven forfend that that should happen in, in the UK. What do you mean? Well, I, I, I haven't seen any evidence of, of people wanting to, or governments wanting to make systems more efficient in any respect. Um, I think that... Uh, I don't know what evidence there is to suggest that, so I'm unwilling to go down that route. I know that uh, the president wants to, uh, sorry, the prime minister wants to um, reduce the civil service to its 2016 level. I think that's probably quite a good idea, but... Often when you reform things, you've got to do a lot of pruning, a lot of fine-tuning, you know, a lot of hard work. And those things are often below the radar. They're not the big moves that you can talk about that grab a headline. I'm just suggesting that sometimes you do need to get that work done. Mm. Yes, I, I do agree with you, and I see where you're coming from there. I also wonder, on, on the subject of asylum seekers, if... Um, you know, the, these people will have gone to Rwanda, uh, just staying with it for a minute. There'll be a judicial review. I mean, who will remember them? Will it, you know, once they get there is number one. Um, well, their claims will be processed. They'll be in Rwanda and their claims are still going to be processed. But at the end of the day, they might still not get to Britain. So I know. that's why it's a deterrent, and apparently. And you were referring to various cases um, in the, in the BBC report about this. He's, they they wrote that one asylum seeker, an Iran, Iranian ex police commander, uh, who's who was told he would be deported on Tuesday, said he fears being killed by Iranian agents in Rwanda. So it's not just the malaria. Um, he's been held at a detention centre since arriving in the UK from Turkey in May. I mean, there's a real problem with outsourcing stuff, actually, and we can get onto that later in the programme, particularly where the airlines are concerned, because they've got a very big problem out with outsourcing. But you, once you outsource something, you lose control of it. That's the problem, you know? I mean, I'm old enough to remember covering the, the bombing of the Twin Towers in New York. I covered that for ITV for six weeks. I was with the Spanish Harlem fire crew. So I spent a long time in New York and I read a lot of stuff afterwards and I came back out. And one of the things was that the airliners outsourced the security. They outsourced the security. And yeah. that's how the bombers got on board. The problem is once you outsource, once you've got a long supply chain, you've inevitably got a fragile supply chain and that leads to problems. That's very salient. Thank you for telling us about that. Um, well, we're not outsourcing anything here on The Missing Question on River Radio. You're listening to Linda Dubley and Rani Singh. We're in the news hour of The Missing Question. Catch us on the web, on the mobile, on Alexa. Head over to the website, river.radio, if you want to download the show, which you can do very soon after we finish at 12. Uh, it's a two-hour show. It's River Radio's two-hour weekly news program, news magazine. 
We are talking, we've been talking about refugees, we'll be talking about many other um, topical subjects in the, up until about 11, when we'll switch to the big interview, hopefully with Ajay Patel if he comes on, um, and we will be talking about training for the London Marathon, we will ha- talk about travel um, right across the two hours as well, because that's very salient in terms of what's going on. And uh, you can write to us, as I said, and we uh, we welcome your thoughts. Now, we've been discussing about Rwanda and refugees, and just to sort of um, wind that up a little bit, there was actually um, a summit this week which um, was hosted by U.S. President Joe Biden in Los Angeles on this topic. Uh, he said that in the U.S. they'll be doing quite a lot to... Um, to help uh, create economic opportunities in Central America and address some of the drivers, excuse me, of migration and forced displacement from the region. Um, The gathering was attended by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees um, and it finished with a joint declaration from Biden and Latin American leaders. I mean, I know that's quite far away um, and and not really uh, relevant to... um, uh, to what's going on here. But the UNHCR report does talk about um, uh, the UK's Rwanda deportation facing plan facing legal challenges. Um, and, uh, and so this is going out. Um, and they also said that new data reflects refugee movements to and from Ukraine. And it's saying that according to new data, um, at least 4.8 million refugees from Ukraine have been recorded across Europe. The figure includes those who initially crossed into neighbouring countries and then moved onwards to other countries. 3.2 million have registered for temporary protection or similar national protection schemes. We will be um, talking to about that a little bit more. But shall we move now to the cost of living and... Um, and that's a crisis that's really being felt across the board um, in the UK and across the world, but particularly where, I mean, this is a UK-based station and we are concerned. Um, we've spoken about that several times. I mean, I'm certainly feeling it in my pocket um, and 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 it really plays in here. Uh, of course, there's a, there was a food report as well that went, came out this week. So I know you've got something to say on that, Linda. Uh, well, the cost of living is that's a real worry, and we haven't even hit the worst of it. We haven't even hit the beginning of the worst of it because that will be as we hit the colder months in late autumn. But it is really shocking. I filled up um, this just this week, and I tried to get ahead of the of the two p a, a, a you know two p a liter pay pay rise or pay increase um, charge rather, and um, and I still had to pay sixty seven pounds to fill up my car. Now I've got a hybrid car. So I've got a half electric, half fuel driven car and it's still £67. And they say the average family car will now go to £100 to fill up your tank. Now, that's enormously difficult for people because the people who will be hit hardest are the people who depend on their cars the most. And often those people are people like care workers or nurses or people who actually have to use their car to visit patients. So it's going to be a crippling situation. And I can't see that there'll be 
any end in sight over this and and it affects everyone it affects cars it the fuel rises will affect the as we've seen the aviation industry in part and it will add into the whole cost of living crisis where we're seeing the um, price of food rising very very dramatically partly because of the crisis in ukraine so um i i i think it is a very concerning thing i think the cost of living is gonna is gonna hit us hard and and in many respects Although we see the situation in Afghanistan internally, not not necessarily the asylum seeker or refugee crisis, but internally in Afghanistan moving down the agenda, and we've got you, even the war in Ukraine moving down the agenda, uh, the price of the cost of living story will inevitably rise to the top because it's a domestic story and it hits people where it hurts the most. It hits them in their pockets. I mean, there are terrible, terrible stories that are circulating right now of a... Uh, uh, BBC Radio 4's Today programme had a young lad on who was trying to encourage his mother to eat breakfast because Mm. he knew that she went without two days a week just to make sure that she could get food on the table for him. These are very, very, very serious scenarios for Mr Johnson. Indeed. I mean, um, I I certainly am thinking about what do I need to cut to... um to make space for, you know, the the increase in prices in across across the board from energy. I mean, as you say, the food uh, costs have gone up hugely in supermarkets. You know, base items like bread and 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 uh, across the board. And uh, well, I, bread will because Ukraine is the kind of wheat basket of the world, and it, it won't just be a, a matter of a cost of living crisis in third world developing countries. People are going to live and die off the back of this. There are people. The World Food Programme has already said the situation is absolutely catastrophic. So it's you know it's inherent on everyone to try and the the hardest to budget effectively but in the end i think the the ex the money saving expert martin lewis said that even if he gave every single good advice he could give it pulled every single lever he could pull for the poorest people in society there are still some people in the autumn will not bring in enough money to pay their outgoings and that's if they do everything right so we've clearly got to do something about this now the complicating factor here is that the other food story apart from food price rises, is the report that's coming out um, about food, the government report led by Henry Dimbleby, the founder of Leon Foods, um, an excellent food chain, actually, and uh, in my view. <laughs> and um, uh, he, he, he thinks that um, largely, it's been largely ignored he hasn't been directly quoted but many people who've seen glimpses of the report chunks of it seen it's, it the real serious nature of the problem has been ignored what what he wanted was an expansion of free school meals a salt and sugar tax and government accent action on obesity and they do not appear to have been taken forward in the terms of these two reports now the problem for the prime minister is that he has a situation he has to address here. We've got 64% of adults in this country are overweight and 40% of school children are overweight. Now, that leads to a whole raft of associated health problems. 
Obviously, there's type 2 diabetes, but then there's all the problems in later life, problems surrounding knee joints and hip replacements, and it affects blood pressure, it affects heart disease, it affects cardiovascular disease. And somehow, we have got to start making a move about dealing with those problems. The issue is that those problems are all much further down the track but the Prime Minister's need to to increase his popularity in the next 100 days is precisely that, in the next 100 days and therefore short term. So you've got a Prime Minister who maybe quite rightly needs to address his fall in the popularity stakes very quickly, has to balance what he does against moves which inevitably would be favourable to this country in the longer term. And all the time he's acting as a populist prime minister, that's at odds with doing something long term, which will actually help improve the the health and well-being of the nation. There's a very stark um, factors or, or views that you present to present to the listeners, Linda. I mean, it's, I just can't get over this. <laughs> There's a leaked version of the government's new strategy that we're talking about. It's advising people to eat wild venison as a low-carbon alternative to beef and grow their own cucumbers to save the planet. I mean, there comes a point when just talking, just coming out with these phrases doesn't do anything. No. I mean, it might even earn contempt, but it doesn't actually achieve anything. I mean, it, it, venison, really. It's I mean, a little bit like let them eat cake. Yes, it is, exactly. I mean, where does a common man, or, or, or me, where am I going to go and buy venison from, you know? Well, the head of the food policy um, section at the Soil Association says this is a statement of vague intentions. And that's really what the situation is. These are vague intentions. It's a kind of noise that goes on where you want to give an impression that something is being done without actually doing it and this situation has been rumbling on for so long that as a reporter on ITV's Tonight with Trevor McDonald program I started covering these food stories two decades ago you know I I've I did all the stories on additives and preservatives and how they affect children and diet and how that affects children I've done a load of stories on obesity and still nothing really happens if anything the obesity rates have risen since I covered these stories. So clearly, if the evidence of your policy is is the solution or a partial solution and that doesn't exist, your policy has to change or tighten up. Yes, I mean... I mean, that's what... what who was it that said that? It was um, Einstein. Why expect a different result if you carry on doing the same thing again and again and again? We simply have to do something to improve the health and well-being of the nation, if only to reduce the pressure on the National Health Service, because all these subjects are all tied together. If you reduce pressure on the National Health Service and you start reducing pressure on some of the other things where we have to provide resources in this country, for example, people might not be so worried about the number of asylum seekers because the pressure would be reduced. But the problem with all these solutions is they're all long-term solutions, medium to long-term solutions that require the heavy lifting, that require the hard graft over a long period of time. Precisely. I mean, the Conservatives have been in power for a long time 
themselves now. And uh, you're saying that, uh, you know, covering uh, food stories over 20 years, um, that things have deteriorated, the situation's deteriorated, the, cost, the, the cases of um, serious, well, type 2 diabetes has risen, if anything, and, um, so, and, and, other, and other ailments long-term. Um, so nothing has really happened, and it doesn't, um, may I venture to say, I can't see anything happening apart from, uh, uh, you know, the, the food industry people who are craving, who actually say that they want regulation, they want some rules and put in place. So then they know they, they would adhere to try to adhere to that. Even if, the, if they, if the food industry itself, which stands to profit from, everything it's doing at the moment, if even it is saying, uh, give us some guidelines, then things have come to a pass. And people like me with um, who are in the um, uh, pre-diabetes stage, the, where, where we can prevent, you know, um, and the NHS has rolled out a very excellent uh, pre-diabetes um, scheme. Pre-diabetes is, a con- is something that's known about, whereas perhaps 20 years ab- ag- uh, ago it wasn't really. Um, people were just getting diabetes through lack of knowledge because it, because it is something that's controllable. Now I'm fully aware of what I need to do to prevent um, serious illness. And, you know, if I do tip over into diabetes um, and uh, others do into type 2, which is controllable and determined by lifestyle, um, then all sorts of things um, can kick in, you know, vision. I mean, it affects every part of your body. Oh, yeah, and yeah. diabetes a, is very, very serious it's a killer. degenerative disease. It's yeah. a killer. So, um, so there are, you know, there are things that we can do. However, if lemon rang pie is available to me, I will, you know, and, and sugar is, a, is, is inherent in everything I'm ingesting. Um, it's hard to resist it when, when I particularly adore sugar. So um, if, we, if we give me as a sort of sample of one, um, if uh, somebody was saying on the radio today that um, if, if sugar levels in certain foods are reduced, it may not even be noticeable to the general public, but a difference will have been made. Yeah, I think sugar is very addictive, not necessarily when it's used as, a, as an additive um, in food, but certainly um, sweets and chocolates and things like that the kids like. It's very, very addictive. I can remember when I was younger, you know, you couldn't just wait for that next hit of sugar. Yeah. It's, I, I saw someone this week, in fact, it was someone that works with me, and um, uh, d- regularly drinks two bottles of Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola. I don't know that I should be using brand names, actually. Other, other <laughs> on, fizzy on drinks work, are available. On the way to work. You know, and um, it's not that she was thirsty, but, but, she, but she could have had water. But, but you know, you, there's an urge. Once you've developed a taste for sugar, there is an urge. And it is incredibly bad for you. Mm. You should be trying to reduce sugar, take sugar out of your diet. And ev- don't add what refined white sugar to anything. And you should always be looking for low sugar alternatives at the supermarket. And if you make your own food, which is the best possible thing, you should be cutting out any sugar that you add now I appreciate because I've got three kids and you know I had 
had a busy life it is really really hard to make the kind of effort where you're cooking meals from scratch every day it's hugely difficult and it can be expensive because mm. we've all seen those gigantic pe- pizzas in the supermarket you know two for five quid or whatever and that's very appealing to a family living on a budget yeah. but we can't just say this is a difficult problem and and we're gonna we're gonna talk about some possible solutions, but they will be this web of vague intentions. We've actually we actually do have to do something about it. I think one of the things that should actually be happening now, as we go into the worst of this um, economic tsunami, is the, is the provision of free school meals mm. for for everybody. Yeah, I, I think it, that that is just it's just so obvious that you would do that um, for school children. For sure. Across the board, because, yes, across the board, I think it would help families a lot. Then at least they'd know, at, at least impoverished families would know that their children are getting one proper meal a day yeah. at school. And, 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 you'd, yeah, and the government find things maybe a little bit more under their control. If everyone at state schools is getting free school meals, then, <clears throat> then the government knows that they have to reach a certain benchmark, that the big catering companies like Compass and the others, they have to reach a certain level of quality, of nutrition. At least we would know that something was actually being achieved. I mean, I think Henry Dimbleby has suggested in his report that there be... Um, that, that there'd be GB prescription for fruit and veg. I think that's a little bit unrealistic. I can't imagine with all the problems we've got at the moment, we're getting a GP's appointment and dealing with the backlog of, of the pandemic and, and with the way surgeries are having to operate at the moment. Adding that into the mix might not be feasible. But what I'm saying is where school meals are concerned, that is something the government can control. Indeed. Is it Jamie Oliver behind you on this? Does, is he also advocating the same Well, way? I'm behind him, actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's been doing this for, 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 for as long as I can remember. He did his groundbreaking TED Talk many years ago, and he is a passionate advocate for the right nutrition for kids, and, and indeed for everyone. And he was behind a lot of the, the, the suggested changes to school meals. And I think in some areas, an awful lot of progress has been made, but I think right now the school meals plan should be extended. Mm, I agree with you. And Henry Dimbleby, just to stay on this for a minute, is, uh, I mean, apparently he spent six months going around researching and and so a lot of work uh went into this report yeah he's a he's a remarkable man um and leon is 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 kind of a fast food chain i guess but not um it, not in the conventional sense of the word um, it's not some other big brands that i could mention for chicken and burgers but he's he does um healthy healthy food that you can grab on the go it was not cheap i don't think you wouldn't be buying every day but certainly there is every indication there that he is a man with a concept for healthy living which is inherent in the kind of investigations he conducts and the kind of report that he has contributed to um uh you know it's, it's it's a really serious situation that needs to be addressed right now you can't have what are effectively unsustainable diets allowed to continue in this way um you, we've we've really got to start actually it's not it's not enough just to talk we've got to walk the walk 
Agreed. And staying with the cost of living crisis and food, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that, but of course there's a knock-on effect to the whole travel industry. Well, that's in complete shambles, isn't it, obviously? Um, The problem is that the airlines made such huge cuts when the pandemic hit. They've now found that they simply don't have the resources to back up the situation now that um, the pent-up demand has been released. Uh, It's interesting that the US government estimated that 100,000 jobs in the aerospace industry had been lost by September 2021. And despite its having handed more than been handed more than fifty billion dollars of support, there was still a problem. Ground handler Swissport cut twenty thousand of its sixty five thousand workers around the world. In all, there were two point three million fewer people employed in the aviation industry by September twenty twenty one, and that's according to the research conducted by the consultancy. Oxford Economics. Now, those cuts were enormous. And the compounding factor is that the airline industry um, exists uh, to some extent on the back of its ability to outsource much of what it does. All the ground handling staff, everything else is handled by independent separate companies. Only the actual flying and the actual staff that fly the planes and just to catch up to pre-pandemic